0: 2006 February 6th today is lecture 22 cosmic distance problem this is the beginning of unit 4 for this course and we'll begin in just a moment are here and begin today we're going to begin the fourth unit of this class we've already finished our discussion of stars and one of the nice parts about talking about stars is that we can really answer all three of the basic questions we started with a description describing them what are they We were able to talk about their physics. What is it that makes stars work individually? How do they they shine? What are the processes by which they operate? And finally, we can put all those pieces together and actually lay out the evolution of stars. How do stars form? How do they go through the cycle of their existence? And how do they end their existence? It's a complete story, and it's actually one of the more fun ones to actually tell in a class like this. But now we're going to turn to another class of objects. We're going to expand our view of the universe a bit to a much wider area. We're going to ask now not about individual stars so much as entire systems of stars that we call the galaxies, starting with our own galaxy, the Milky Way, and heading outwards finally into the universe itself. This is the next stair step along to the largest things in the universe, namely the structure of the universe itself. So today's unit is Island Universes, the Milky Way, and External Galaxies, and it will, is what we'll be, we will be discussing for the next two weeks leading up to the next quiz. Now when we're going to start this, of course, just like when we started talking about stars, we have to pause for a moment and solve one of the long-standing persistent problems of astrophysics, namely, how do we measure the distances to things? And today's lecture is going to be on the cosmic distance problem. We're going to describe a series of ways of measuring distances and how we solve this when we want to go to much, much larger distances. So the key ideas of today are as follows. The first is that there are a number of ways in which we measure distances. So far, we've only seen one of those methods. We've only seen the method of using what's called geometric distances. We exploit the properties of Euclidean geometry, essentially. To find out, find the distances of objects. These are techniques which are familiar from surveying and in astronomy. It's embodied primarily by a method called the method of trigonometric parallaxes. Now, there are other geometric distance and distance methods available in astronomy. They tend to be rarely applied in arcane. They can only happen under certain special conditions. As we saw before, however, Distance estimates using geometry are somewhat limited technologically. And we have to turn to other methods if we want to go to larger and larger distances. So today we're going to introduce the idea of what's called a luminosity distance. A luminosity distance is basically any method that exploits the inverse square law of brightness to estimate the distance to an object whose brightness I know by comparing it to its apparent brightness. This is going to involve the idea of so-called standard candles, which are basically just objects whose luminosity I know ahead of time, independent of their distance. And then I'm going to introduce three very important methods that are going to be used when we talk about galactic structure and the distances between galaxies that employ luminosity distances, that try to establish a kind of standard candle. The first of these is called the method of spectroscopic parallaxes, which we'll use the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. And spectral classification is a way to try to get at the luminosity and hence the luminosity distance. And then two methods based on pulsating variable stars, two special classes, Cepheid variables and rl lyrae stars. These latter two are extremely important to us because, in fact, they work out to the distances of the nearest by galaxies and nearest clusters of galaxies and are forming really, literally, the stepping stones to cosmic distances. So today we're going to once again... Turn to the problem of cosmic distances and see how it is solved as we try to go deeper and deeper into space. Now, as I've said before, distances remain one of the thorniest problems in astrophysics. We simply are dealing with phenomena that are separated by such vast distances that I can't bridge them by physical means. I have to find some other way to measure large distances. This happens even the beginning of close to home. Measuring the distance from the Earth to the Sun required the use of geometry. Distances are extremely important to us. The reason why we expend so much effort, so much pain as sometimes, measuring distances is that the payoff is so huge. Without knowing the distance, I would not be able to answer certain fundamental physical questions about objects. I can't tell you how much energy is released by that object. It's luminosity. As we saw in our discussion of stars, knowing the amount of energy they put out was absolutely vital to understanding their source of energy and their life cycles. I can't measure the physical sizes of objects. I don't know whether an object, a nebula or a star cluster I'm looking at, is as big as this room or millions of light years across. I simply don't know if I don't have any way to relate to the distance because it's so far away, all I can really measure directly is an angle across the sky. I can't measure the masses of objects without knowing the distance except in unusual circumstances. For example, eclipsing binary stars, the one example, one exception I don't need to know the distance to know the masses of that pair of stars. Any other binary star, I need to know the distance. For galaxies, how much mass is contained in a galaxy or in a cluster or group of galaxies? I simply cannot answer that question if I do not have a reliable accurate distance. Furthermore, another thing that I need distances for is the distribution of objects in space. If I see a group of nebulae or galaxies or stars in the sky, I have no idea whether it's a bunch of faint objects nearby or a bunch of very bright objects far away or whether they're spread out over a large range or all at the same distance. I simply cannot tell by looking at them. I have to have some way of measuring the distances to each individual object so I can sort the near from the far and see how they're distributed around me in space. This latter one is going to be very important to us when we try to figure out exactly what kind of place we live in. What is the Milky Way really like as we'll see tomorrow? So we have to know the distances for lots and lots of things. And the problem is how we measure them. Now the most direct way of measuring distances in astronomy is to exploit the properties of geometry. Simple geometry on the plane is described by Euclid back about 300 BC. These are techniques that go all the way back to the Babylonians and the Egyptians for surveying out distances on the ground. In fact, they're still the methods that we use today. Even if you carry one of these little uh, GPS receivers. You, some of you have GPS receivers now in our cell phones and cars. The way those work is by using geometry. The, that device is literally triangulating off orbiting constellations of satellites. So geometry is a very simple, very basic way of measuring distances. In the solar system, which we're now talking about space distances and outer space, we can use the geometry of the orbits to determine distances. This is what Copernicus did in the De Revolutionibus, to determine what the arrangement and distribution of the planets were in space. Using those distances, Kepler was able to discover his famous third law, that the period squared was proportional to a cubed, that in the hands of Isaac Newton, when Isaac Newton actually came up with a way of describing forces mathematically, allowed him to actually discover the law of gravity and the way in which objects move. Nowadays, we not only use geometry, but we combine that with direct bouncing of radar signals off of the planets to get the most accurate distances in the solar system. And in fact, today, I can actually measure the size of the astronomical unit to a precision of a few centimeters. So even though the sun is approximately 150 million kilometers away, I can actually write that particular number down all the way to about eight or nine digits to where the difference in precision is basically about my ability to hold my fingers apart. It's a remarkable achievement, but it only gets me the distance from the Earth to the Sun. But it's a very important distance, because once I've measured the distance of the Earth to the Sun, that gives me a large ruler, geometrically speaking, to now measure the distances of stars. And that, of course, is the way in which I then make the leap from solar system scales, measuring distances in astronomical units, to measuring the distances to the nearby stars in parsecs. The method of trigonometric parallax is using geometry but now the base of my triangle is the orbit of the Earth itself. So if I didn't know the size of the orbit of the Earth, I wouldn't know the physical distance to stars. So the first step was to measure the solar system, measure the Earth's orbit. The second step is to now use that as the base of a triangle with the method of trigonometric parallaxes. To review the method of trigonometric parallaxes works as follows. I have the Earth orbiting around the Sun. We'll approximate it as a circle here. In June, I look out at a nearby foreground star and look at its position against a background of much more distant stars. So for example, in June, this little orange K star here is seen against this background where there's a pair of red and blue stars there. If I wait six months later in December, I will have come around to a position where this orange star will appear to have now be against the background of the yellow stars. The object will have appeared to move back and forth, not because it's actually moving, although it could have a proper motion, I've just suppressed it in this picture, but in fact is seeing simply the reflex motion of the fact that the Earth is moving back and forth across the base of a triangle that's two astronomical units across, about 300 million kilometers. If I draw the complete triangle, I measure this inside half angle here I call p, the parallax angle, then the distance simply falls out from geometry. The distance is 1 over the parallax, measured in arc seconds. If I have an object with a parallax of 1 arc second, I say that it is 1 parallax second or 1 parsec away. So what I've done is I've made the orbit of the Earth the measure of the nearby universe. I've laid out the distance geometrically using the simple rules of the geometry of triangles in a plane to estimate the distances to nearby stars. It's a simple math method that requires I first measure this distance, the distance of the Earth to the sun accurately. And of course, we have accomplished that. It took us a couple hundred years to pull it off, but we did in fact finally get that number. So it's secure. Once I know that, I then lay that out as my ruler And I now have a measurement of the distances to the nearest stars, again using geometry in this method of so-called trigonometric parallaxes. Now, ground-based parallaxes require that I measure the small angular motion of nearby stars relative to much more distant stars. In practical terms, what I, in fact, use as my background reference frame is not other stars because they in principle should have a small parallax as well, I actually use distant galaxies or or if not galaxies, certainly a class of distant point source objects called quasars. They're among the most distant objects in the universe and their parallaxes should be vanishingly small. I treat that as a background and then I measure the small back and forth wiggle described by stars due to the motion of the Earth through the course of a year. If I do that from the ground, I can measure that back and forth angle, that P angle, to about one one hundredth of an arc second. Since one one hundredth of an arc second corresponds one over the parallax to a hundred parsecs distance, that kind of sets the limit out to which I can measure good nearby distances, is about 100 parsecs. I make that 100 parsec volume around me the so-called solar neighborhood. Now it turns out that I can do this in round numbers for less than about a thousand stars. And while this seems to be a straightforward process, In fact, it's a job that we have not finished yet. There's a a gentleman named Sebastien Lapine coming to talk to our department this week, he's one of our colloquium visitors, who has been involved for the last decade or so in attempting to complete the census of stars within 100 parsecs by measuring parallaxes for ever fainter and fainter red dwarf stars. So even here in the year 2006, long after parallaxes were first measured in the 1830s, we are still at work on the parallax problem. It's that hard, technically. Using spacecraft, we can improve upon this. The Hipparcos spacecraft can produce parallaxes down to a milli-arc second, a thousandth of one arc second. A thousandth of an arc second corresponds to a distance of about a thousand parsecs. In fact, we're gonna use a thousand parsecs so much, I often will shorten that to a kiloparsec when we talk about distances within our galaxy. This can be done for about 100,000 stars and gets us out to a local bubble around the sun that just begins to encompass the nearby spiral arms of our own Milky Way galaxy. So the geometric distance distance method of trigonometric parallax is pretty good, but only locally. It really doesn't get us beyond the distances between individual stars. But we want to go so much further away than that. What do we do when we run out of space? We run out of precision in our methods. Well, one way is to build new spacecraft. But each new spacecraft that extends that distance indicator is far more expensive, far more difficult to build, and it takes a long time to launch and run. The next level of this is a mission called Gaia, which may not launch until 2015. And it's going to cost probably on order of 1 to 2 billion euros to actually launch. The reason I say euros is because the Europeans are working on it. This is not an American spacecraft that will probably begin to encompass the center of our own galaxy. We're just barely getting out of the backyard with geometric techniques. But we can clearly see so much more. So how do we make the leap beyond geometric techniques? Well geometry I've called a direct technique because you can think of drawing imaginary lines to form triangles and there are direct links between the thing I've measured well, the base of the triangle, and the thing I'm trying to measure the distance to. It's a direct geometric way. There's another somewhat indirect way in which I'm now going to exploit distance-dependent properties of the object to to calculate or derive the distance. In this case, I'm going to define something called a luminosity distance. This is an indirect distance indicator that turns out to be very useful to us. It's based on the inverse square law of brightness. I start out with something I can measure. And what I can measure of an object is its apparent brightness, how bright it appears to me here on the Earth. I then assume a luminosity for that object. I assume that I know how bright it really is. And remember that the apparent brightness is related to the luminosity, the absolute brightness, through the inverse square law of brightness. To remind you going all the way back to the first week of class, The apparent brightness of an object is equal to the luminosity divided by 4 pi times the distance to that object squared. It's just the inverse square law of brightness. It's exploiting the geometry of space in the sense that as an object, as light moves away from a source, it gets spread out over a larger and larger area as the distance squared. And so by, if I can measure how bright an object appears, and I know how bright it really is, I can use algebra to invert this formula and derive the distance because I know the brightness, I know the luminosity, and I want to know the distance. So I have three unknowns here. I know two of them that leaves me with just one. A little bit of algebraic manipulation. And I find this thing D, which I'm now going to be very explicit and call D sub L here for luminosity distance. That's to remind you that this is not the same as a geometric distance. It's going to be equal to the square root of the luminosity divided by 4 pi times the brightness. Let's back up a second and remember that there's a distinction between what I can actually observe, what I can measure directly, called an observable, and that's B, the brightness here. This is an observable. I simply put a photometer on a telescope, I point it at the star, I measure the brightness. It's a direct observation. What I'd really like to know to complete this equation is I need to know what the luminosity is. How do I go about this second step? How do I assume an object's luminosity? It would be really convenient if all stars were labeled like light bulbs, to use my old analogy that says 100 watts on the top, because then I can simply go out and say, oh, okay, that's a 100 billion trillion watt star. I know how many watts it appears to be here on Earth. The ratio square root with a little 4 pi to make the geometry come out right gives me the distance in parsecs. Well, as we've just seen in our exploration of stars, the luminosity of a star changes through its life. What kind of luminosity it has depends on such things as if it's a main sequence star, or a red giant, or a white dwarf, or something else. It's going to be a little difficult to just guess, a priori, the luminosity of an object. But that isn't going to stop us. We're going to find certain objects for which I can do that. I can't do it for everything. But there are going to be a certain class of objects for which I can do it. We call objects whose luminosity I know ahead of time, a priori, a standard candle. It gets its name from the fact that in the days before um, electronics, one used to set standards for lighting by making a certain candle out of a certain type of wax with a certain type of wick in a very certain way. They were always made exactly the same way and then handed out to different factories, and you made your candles to that standard, hence the name standard candle. We've adopted this term standard candle in astrophysics to mean any object whose luminosity I know completely independent of any of its distance. In other words, it's as if nature has stamped a label on it saying, I'm 100 billion trillion watts. And we'll see what some of those labels, as I call them, are that allow us to infer the luminosity of a particular type of object, something that distinguishes it from other objects. Now the way in which we establish an object as a standard candle is via a multi-step calibration process we call a bootstrap process. It gets its name from the old expression about grabbing yourself and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. We start by calibrating the luminosities of nearby objects for which I actually have distances using trigonometric parallaxes. So I look in my local bubble of 100 parsecs or 1,000 parsecs around the sun, for which either from ground-based techniques or Hipparchos, I've measured an accurate parallax distance, a geometric distance. So now I have the distance. I have its apparent brightness. I simply apply the inverse square law of brightness and derive its luminosity, just like we'd been doing for stars all along the previous unit. That's the starting point, however, whereas before it was the ending point. Once I have a series of objects whose luminosity I've measured through geometric distance techniques, I then identify similar objects, but too far away to use parallaxes. I pick a particular type of star that's distinctive in some way. I find all the nearby examples, measure their distances with parallax, measure their luminosities. I say, oh, look, cool. All stars of that distinctive type have the same luminosity to within the measurement errors. Then I go look for much more distant examples of that same kind of distinctive object, but which are too far away to measure using parallaxes. I then identify them. I assume that those those distant objects are the same as the nearby ones. I measure their apparent brightness. I compare their apparent brightness to the luminosity of nearby objects, and I compute a luminosity distance. So it's a relatively straightforward method to use. I basically go out, measure nearby objects whose distances I already know, calibrate the luminosity, find more distant examples, measure their apparent brightness, compare them to those nearby objects, assume they are the same. Sometimes a dangerous assumption. And then the only difference between them would be the luminosity. So that's the basic process in abstract. Let's now see how that's applied in various ways through different ways of doing this trick, of finding objects nearby, calibrating their distances, and then looking for more distant examples. The first of these is gonna be the method of spectroscopic parallaxes. Now, I've put the parallaxes in, in quotes here, and the reason is because it's an unfortunate choice of names, but historically, we're stuck with it. There's no parallax, there's no angle measurement here at all. I'm sorry, I didn't make this one up. It goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. The distance-independent property that I'm going to use to distinguish one star from another is going to be its spectrum. If I take the spectrum of a star, I get a spectral type and a luminosity class, just like we saw at the beginning of the last of the last section. That's completely independent of distance. A G2 dwarf star has the spectrum of a G2 dwarf star, whether I'm orbiting it like the sun, or whether it's all the way across the galaxy from me. Provided I can get a good enough spectrum to put it on that OBAFGKML series, and can measure the widths of the lines to establish the luminosity class, is totally independent of its distance. Because the spectral type does not change with distance at all. Only the brightness changes, only the apparent brightness. So the basic physics behind this method is that I get the spectral type from the, from the spectrum, and that tells me the star's temperature. That tells me where to locate it along the vertical axis of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. I measure its luminosity class from the widths of the spectral absorption lines. Very, very small dwarf stars have high gravity, high pressure, and therefore very, very broad absorption lines. Supergiant stars are big, fat, puffy, low-pressure, low-gravity stars, and have very, very narrow, emission, narrow absorption lines. So I can at least, to a first approximation, tell the difference between a dwarf star, a giant, and a supergiant by simply looking at the widths of the absorption lines. And again, it doesn't matter what the distance is as long as I get a good enough spectrum to do that. So the spectral type tells me where to locate the object in temperature along the vertical axis of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. The widths of the absorption lines tell me which of the groups on the HR diagram it belongs to, dwarfs, giants, supergiants, and the various intermediate types. Together, these two pieces of information give me the unique location of that star in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. But remember that the vertical axis of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram is the luminosity. Now, to use this method, I have to build a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram from nearby stars for which I've measured parallaxes. I have to calibrate that in terms of absolute luminosities. And I do that by looking in the local bubble of 100 to 1,000 parsecs and building up a very detailed calibration for a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. I then take a more distant star, measure its spectrum, get its spectral type and luminosity class. From that, I then locate that star on my calibrated Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. The spectrum tells me where to locate it vertically in temperature, spectral type, and the luminosity class tells me whether it belongs in the main sequence, the giant branch, or the supergiant branch, or the various intermediate types. I then read off, from placing it in the HR diagram, the luminosity. I measure its apparent brightness, and from its apparent brightness, I estimate the luminosity distance using that formula I showed you just a few pages back. So that's the basic method. I use the spectrum to tell me where the star should be on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, and I use that to infer a luminosity because I assume that a supergiant star of a given temperature is like all other nearby supergiant stars of the same temperature and use that to estimate its luminosity. Now again, let me me underline, even though I use the word spectroscopic parallax in the name, there's no parallax measurement here. It's a very different thing than the geometric method we just described. So to give you a graphical feel for how this works, again, I take an HR diagram, a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, These white dots here are based on the local calibration. I've measured the parallaxes of each and every one of these stars. And so I put it it here on the horizontal axis by measuring its spectrum and measuring its temperature, measured out in Kelvins here. And by using its apparent brightness and its parallax distance, I know how to put it on a luminosity. I ignore the luminosity class when I make this diagram, except insofar as to note, all the little stars up in this group are supergiants, all the stars in this group are giants, and all the stars along the main sequence here are type 5 dwarfs. So this is a calibrated HR diagram. Then I go out and I measure a more distant star by measuring its spectral type. Its spectral type tells me where to locate it horizontally. It's an A8 star, tells me it's going to be at this temperature, but the fact that it's luminosity class 5 tells me it should be approximately in the middle of the the main sequence. It's a main sequence star. Well, if it's a main sequence star, I simply read across and say, oh, it's got a luminosity of about 10 solar luminosities. I measure its apparent brightness, I use its inferred luminosity, and I derive a luminosity distance. I could find another A8 star, but instead it's got super narrow lines. That tells me it's an A8 supergiant. That tells me it belongs at the same place horizontally on the HR diagram, but it belongs up among the supergiants, not down among either the giants or the dwarfs. So there, I put it up among that group of stars, slam across horizontally to the HR diagram, and say, where should it be vertically in the luminosity axis? And I infer that if, it's, if this A8 supergiant is like the nearby calibrated A8 supergiants, then it should have a luminosity of about 22,000 times the luminosity of the sun. I measure its apparent brightness, I derive a luminosity distance. That's it. We call this spectroscopic parallaxes. It really could be, should be called a spectroscopic distance, but the same basic idea. There are limitations to this method. The practical limit is out to about 100,000 parsecs. That's about the maximum distance out to which I can get a decent spectrum, because after that, the stars become so faint that my spectroscopic techniques begin to get so poor that I can't tell a giant from a supergiant. In fact, I even have troubles telling among the various spectral subtypes. It turns out it works best for star clusters, where I can then use the individual inaccuracies of single stars to leverage, statistically, all of the stars together, because in a cluster of stars, they're all at the same distance. The real problems with this methods become self-evident from that previous picture. The main sequence, the giant branch, the supergiant branch are not sharply defined. They're fuzzy because stars evolve. They have ever so slightly different metallicities, for example. They might be at slightly different ages and therefore at slightly different parts of their evolution. Stars are moving all over the HR diagram through these loci. So when I simply take a bubble of stars, 100 parsecs or 1,000 parsecs around the sun, I'm taking a snapshot of all different ranges of ages and masses and metallicities. Now I go out and grab a single star. I don't know from looking at that star where in its evolution it is, except in a very coarse-grained way. So I can only approximately put it, okay, the main sequence is kind of here, the giant branch is there, the supergiant branch is somewhere else. Furthermore, where it actually lands in the HR diagram in detail depends somewhat on its composition. As stars get further away, it gets harder to tell a metal poor from a metal rich star in making those second-order corrections. Furthermore, as the stars get fainter, the classifications get crappier, and so my uncertainties about where to plunk that star down on my calibrated HR diagram get big. The bottom line is, is that... For individual stars, this is actually not a very good method. If I wanted to know the distance to that star, I can get an approximate distance using spectroscopic parallaxes, but I'm not going to rely on it for doing detailed physics. Where the spectroscopic parallax method really shines is when I have whole clusters of stars. That cluster stars are all at the same distance because they were born together, and I can use the fact that the cluster is a snapshot in age of stars of similar metallicity, that I can use the statistics of all the various measurements to actually refine my distance estimate. And what I actually measure is not the distance to individual stars, but I measure the distance to the cluster on average and then associate that distance with the individual stars that are members of that cluster. So here's a first example we've run into where I have to now rely on measurement statistics to refine the measurement. So we're going to rely on spectroscopic parallaxes when I want to know the distances to star clusters. If stars aren't in clusters, it's not going to be a very good method, but I can usually find star clusters associated with various structures in the Milky Way, and so by associating those clusters with that structure, I've learned their distance. Similarly, I might look in other galaxies, identify star clusters, assume they're like nearby clusters, and play the same game. That's the essence of spectroscopic parallaxes. You get a little, you have to give up a little sometimes in these methods. But what if I really did want the distance to an individual star? What if I really was looking for something about that star that really distinguished it in a way that made it stand out from the billions of other stars in the galaxy? A galaxy the size of the Milky Way has 200 billion stars. I can't go measure every single one of them, searching individually for objects I know. I need to have some that are going like, hey, yo, hey, hey, look at me, look at me. I need something that's gonna get my attention. So I look for some secondary property that has nothing whatsoever to do with distance. It's distance independent. That makes it stand out. And maybe I can identify a class of objects that all share that property that are the same as nearby as they are distant and use that as a standard candle. One of the ways in which a star can say, hey, yo, hey, look at me, is that some stars are not stable. They go through a phase of their life where they're literally unstable. They pulsate with a regular, repeating, periodic pattern. This pulsation gives me a distance-independent property. The distance-independent property is the period, the repetition pattern of the cycle of brightness variations. For example, a star that might swell up and shrink rhythmically, it's actually sitting there literally breathing and pulsing in size. Remember that how luminous a star is depends upon its temperature to the fourth power times its radius squared. If its temperature is constant, but it's getting bigger and smaller, it will get brighter and fainter rhythmically back and forth. What if it turns out that all stars that pulsate in a very particular way all share the same luminosity? If I can establish that, then what I do is out of those billions of stars in a galaxy, I find that handful that are pulsating in a characteristic way and focus on them. And that's the goal of using pulsating variable stars as possible distance indicators. Not all pulsating variables deliver on the promise of becoming a standard candle, but a couple have. So the physics, what we're looking for here, is something called a period-luminosity relationship. Some of these are actually predicted from the basic physics of stars. We know what the structure of stars is pretty well. And what it turns out, if you do a f- computer model of what a pulsating star will look like, you predict that the period and luminosity should be strongly correlated in certain circumstances. So what we want to do is go find the so-called period-luminosity relationships. If I can calibrate them using relatively nearby objects then if I measure the period, I can read off the luminosity because there's a tight correlation between the two. So having a period luminosity relationship for a class of variable stars is very important. The pattern of variability makes it distinctive. It says, hey, here I am, I'm this kind of star. The period luminosity relationship allows me to measure the distance-independent property, the period, and relate that to a calibrated luminosity Once I have a luminosity, I measure the apparent brightness, I derive a luminosity distance. There are a couple of classes of stars that have strong period-luminosity relationships. Here's a measure of the period, a pulsation in days, versus luminosity. And these are some actual data, although I've distilled it down to make the picture look cleaner, for two classes of stars, one of which has periods under about one day. They're called R.R. Lyrae stars. They're a little under 100 solar luminosities. And a class of stars whose period of variation runs from about one day up to about 50 to 100 days called Delta Cephei stars. These things get their name based on the first example of them found, the prototype. So Delta Cephei stars have a very strong correlation in the sense that longer periods have higher luminosities. And you can see that some of these are very, very luminous stars, which is good because it means I can see them a long, long ways away. I don't want to use faint little poopy stars because I can't see them very far away. So I want to find pulsating really bright suckers. Let's start with the Cepheid variables. These are rhythmically pulsating supergiant stars. It turns out that as a star crosses the supergiant sequence, there's a period in which it places it on the HR diagram wherein it actually becomes unstable to internal pulsations. And they literally rhythmically pulsate. They literally breathe in and out, changing their radius, because they're sitting there ringing like a gigantic gong just happens to be a little internal instability in the way in which radiation is trying to get its way out, drives oscillations in these stars. These are supergiants, which tell you right away that these are massive stars, and so they're only going to be found in very young star clusters, because massive stars have very short lifetimes. They're going to be extremely luminous, between 1,000 and 10,000 times the luminosity of the sun, so we're going to see these a long ways away. Their period, the range of brightness change, is really distinctive. It ranges from a few percent, kind of subtle, to a factor of 2 to 3 in brightness. So these things, when you can find them, they just stand out like a sore thumb. They have a very characteristic period of variability. And the period range is about 1 to 50 days, which is good because you can find them in a short, finite time. You can see one or two cycles through the course of a year and clearly identify not only that they are that Cepheid variables, but you can measure their period not by measuring it once, but by measuring it many times, fold the data together, and get a very good measurement. There is a very cleanly defined period luminosity relationship for Cepheid stars. We'll see in future lectures how that was actually originally measured. It works in the direction that the longer the period of pulsation... Slow pulsations are very, very luminous stars. You can kind of think that makes sense. A bigger star would sort of be a slower pulsator, therefore have a long period. Smaller stars of this class will be a slightly more vigorous. They'll actually pulsate much more rapidly. They'll have a short period, but because they're smaller stars, they have a lower luminosity. Turns out that for a, a Poseffian with about a three-day period is about 1,000 solar luminosities. For a 30-day period, it's about 10,000 solar luminosities. So to get really far, you want to find those long period pulsators because that's going to be the really bright ones. The brighter the star, the easier it is to measure. That's just the whole, whole basis for it. So you pick them out based on their pulsation pattern. You measure the period. The period directly relates to the luminosity. And these stars are very characteristic in their brightness. This is a pair of classical Cepheid stars in a nearby galaxy called the Large Magellanic Cloud. Here's a three-day period Cepheid and a two-day period Cepheid. There are sort of slight differences and nuances here. They get bright really rapidly and fade out, bright fade out. And this is what they look like. This is measurements taken over many, many months. So we can add together all those measurements, and you get a beautifully defined what we call light curve. So here's a subtle pulsator of two days. Here's a three-day pulsator. These things really do stand out like sore thumbs. The way you would use them is you take a Cepheid period luminosity relationship that you've calibrated in some way, either using nearby objects or say using Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams for clusters containing these stars and use the distance indicators that way. If I observe a Cepheid with a period of 10 days and read across, 10-day Cepheids should have a luminosity of about 5,011 solar luminosities. A shorter period Cepheid will be up around 1,000 a longer period 30-day Cepheid will be up to 10,000. If I can find very long period Cepheids, which are somewhat rarer because they're much more massive stars and much more luminous, I can see a 100-day Cepheid. I'll see it a long, long ways away. So again, I measure the period, which is totally independent of a distance. It takes 10 days to pulsate whether I'm right next to it or whether it's in the next galaxy over. Measure the period from a calibrated period luminosity relationship. I read off the luminosity. I measure its apparent brightness. The luminosity and apparent brightness through the distance-luminosity formula gives me a luminosity distance. Very straightforward. Now there there are limitations, of course. There are always limitations. First of all, Cepheids are massive stars. They're only going to be found in young star clusters. So if I'm interested in finding the distance to a part of the galaxy which only contains old stars, I'm not going to be able to use the Cepheid method because there are no Cepheids. They've long since evolved away out of the Cepheid zone, and they've gone supernova, and they're vanished. They're bye-bye. They're out of there. However, they're extremely luminous, but they're not superluminous. So I can measure them a long ways away, and in fact, using the Hubble Space Telescope, I can measure them out to 30 to 40 megaparsecs, 30 to 40 million parsecs. This is exceedingly important because this is far enough to reach out not only out of our own galaxy, but into the nearby cluster of galaxies in the constellation of Virgo. So the Cepheid distances are absolutely crucial to measuring cosmic distances because they're the one method we've got that spans from nearby local galaxy to the nearest galaxies. It's the cosmic stepping stone. There are problems, however. One of the big problems is, unfortunately, there are no Cepheids are very rare. Therefore, there are very few near the sun. No Cepheids have good parallaxes. So I have to actually calibrate the Cepheid distance period-luminosity relationship using spectroscopic parallaxes for young star clusters. So I've already gotten the Cepheid scale is now two steps removed from parallaxes. Furthermore, if that wasn't enough, I said that the characteristic period of variability was very distinctive. Unfortunately, there's a second class of stars that shares a very similar style of variation that turns out to be much lower luminosity. So if you look at one of those stars, they're called W. Virginis stars, and you think it's a Delta Cephei star, you're going to think it's brighter than it really is, and you're going to overestimate the distance to the object. Because, in fact, it's faint because it's a little poopy star, not because it's a supergiant. There's always something. There's always somebody who's got to look similar because the physics behind pulsation is a common piece of physics. So you've got to be somewhat careful. This, in fact, is a problem that haunted early attempts to measure the distances to galaxies because they thought they were looking at Delta Cephei stars when, in fact, they were looking at the fainter W. Virginis stars. just took them a while to figure it out. RR Lyrae stars are the other class of pulsating stars that are very useful to us. They're horizontal branch stars. These are stars which are burning helium in their cores. They exist down on the stable horizontal branch. They're low-mass stars. Their luminosity is around 50 L sun. Compare this to the 1,000 to 10,000 L sun for Cepheids. Their r- brightness variations are very strong, a factor of 2 to 3. They're very, very distinctive. And they have short periods, less than a day. Sort of a half a day to a day is pretty typical of an RL star. So they're very distinctive. They turn out to be distant relatives to the Cepheid variables in that what's causing them to pulsate is the same mechanism that works in Cepheids just scaled down to lower mass stars. It's this whole thing referred to generically as the kappa mechanism. They also have a period luminosity relationship, but it's actually kind of flat. It's got a very shallow slope. So there isn't a lot of change in luminosity as I go from short period to long period, but in fact, it's similar. In that short period areolires are slightly less luminous than long period iris. Sorry. So the areolires are related to Cepheids, but they're intrinsically fainter. They're 50 times the luminosity of the sun, instead of 1,000 to 10,000. So that means I'm going to see them less far away. But they do have some virtues that they're very bright, distinctive pulsators and they have a very distinctive spectral type. So actually our Elyris are pretty useful to us. The basic limitations of them are one of their strengths. Cepheids are only found in areas where star formation has occurred in the last few million years, in very, very young clusters. RR Lyrae stars are, are horizontal branch stars. They're found for solar mass stars when that star cluster is 10 or 11 billion years old. So RR Lyries are characteristic of very very old clusters, very evolved clusters, galactic bulge and the galactic halo, places where stars formed billions of years ago. So I have more territory I can use them in. However, because they're fainter, I don't see them as far away. Out to only a megaparsec using the Hubble Space Telescope. A megaparsec barely gets us to our neighboring galaxy, the Andromeda Galaxy. So ROIRIs are extremely important because I can use them wherever there are old stars, anywhere in our galaxy, in nearby galaxies to us within our local group of galaxies, but beyond that, I simply can't see them. They're too faint to see. Now, of course, there are detailed problems. One of the detailed problems is we also don't have good parallaxes for many RR Lyrae stars, so I've got to again rely on the spectroscopic parallax method for nearby clusters. That's why I emphasized spectroscopic parallaxes at the beginning. Also, the fact that they are less bright than Cepheids means that they're of limited utility on a cosmic sense, but they're extremely important to us in measuring the structure of our Milky Way and nearby galaxies. So even though they aren't quite the big cosmic stepping stone that gets me to the rest of the universe, they do. They are in fact vital for galactic structure because they don't rely on being in a young cluster. I can observe them anywhere that stars have formed in the last few billion years. They're rare, they're difficult to find to be sure, but they're sufficiently distinctive that we actually have begun to turn them up in digital sky surveys in very large numbers, and they're vital probes of galactic structure and of distances to nearby satellites of our galaxy. Now, the bottom line, distances are important, and we have to rely on non-geometric, indirect luminosity-based measurements to find distances on cosmic scales, to get beyond our local bubble of the, of the neighborhood of the solar sun. But no single method that I've described today is going to give me all the answers to all distant objects in all places in the universe. To actually do this, I have to build up a cosmic distance scale which looks something like a ladder. I start at the bottom rung by calibrating parallaxes using the size of our solar system, the astronomical unit. From the local parallaxes, I build Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams using parallaxes to then use Hertzsprung-Russell diagram-based techniques, i.e. spectroscopic parallaxes, to get the distances to clusters of stars. Those clusters, if they're very young, contain Cepheids. If they're very old, contain RR Lyries. That allows me to calibrate the Cepheid and RR Lyrie distance scales. That gets me to the rest of the universe. Oops. See you all tomorrow.